I'm Sin Anaral, and this is The Digital Insider, where we get to the real hard science behind the digital economy and explore the latest trends in digital business and society with the world's leading thinkers and doers. Welcome back to The Digital Insider. I'm Sin Anaral. Today is a very important day across the United States. It's election day. While there's a lot of hope in the hands of our democracy, there's also a looming threat and vulnerability to the election by interference and foreign actors. In today's Hot Takes episode of the podcast, we'll talk about the steps we as individuals, policymakers, and business owners must take to prevent election influencers and interference and to prevent the spread of fake news. We'll talk about what social media companies can do to stop fake news on their platforms and whether breaking up Facebook and others will help make the problem better or worse. We'll also discuss what science tells us about why we're so susceptible to fake news and how we can break the cycle. Please remember to rate, review, subscribe, and share with a friend. Enjoy the show. The initiative on the digital economy is all about how uh, the economy is being radically transformed by digital innovation. And two of the most important transformations that we're aware of uh, are the rise of social technologies and the ability to conduct massive experiments on a scale that is unprecedented. We uh, just finished the largest ever longitudinal study of the spread of false news online. Uh, we did this with Twitter and uh, we studied all of the true and false verified stories that ever spread on Twitter since its inception in 2006 to the present day. And we found some amazing insights that were both scary and in fact contradict most of the uh, congressional testimony that we're hearing about false news uh, in the last six months. What we found was that false news spreads further, faster, farther, and more uh, broadly than the truth in every category of information and by orders of magnitude. We also found that contrary to popular belief, this isn't due to bots spreading false news. It's because human beings are susceptible to spreading false news more than we initially thought. Uh, this is primarily because human beings are susceptible to novelty and we're much more likely to share novel information. And false news is just more novel because it's made up. The technologies are agnostic. It's all about how we use these technologies that affect the outcomes that we see. So we have seen a tremendous impact on our democracy from social technologies. We now know that other outside uh, state actors have been interfering in our elections by uh, distributing propaganda through these social technologies, by creating news stories that are false, distributing those news stories through the hype machine of social technologies, and essentially creating dramatic polarization amongst the American electorate. What we're working on now is interventions to dampen uh, false news cascades, for instance, by labeling news with a veracity score. How true is what you're reading? So. All in all, we're studying and learning about how false news works, how it operates, and how to fix the problem. Everything that comes after this will be in the context of these rich technologies that have completely reshaped probably one of the most important aspects of human civilization, which is how we communicate with one another, how we coordinate with one another, and how we're influenced by one another. It's transformative, it's fundamental, and it's here to stay without a doubt. 
did Russia sway the election of 2016? We know they sent manipulative messages to 126 million people on Facebook, 20 million on Instagram, and 10 million tweets. Do these things sway the election? There's really three things to know. Does it change vote choice? Does it change voter turnout? And is the reach, scope, and targeting of misinformation or campaign information enough to sway an election. And we're learning disturbing new detail about just how pervasive the Russian attack on the 2016 election actually was. George, the new Senate intelligence report says the Russians likely attempted to find weaknesses, as you said, in the voting systems of all 50 states probing and scanning the voting systems of at least 21 states. According to the report, the Russians stole or looked at the personal data of hundreds of thousands of voters from at least two states, including Illinois. Voter choice is simply who you choose to vote for given that you're voting. Do you vote for Republicans or Democrats? That's a vote choice. The evidence on vote choice is relatively clear. Social media messaging and digital advertising in general has a very small to negligible to zero effect on vote choice. Voter turnout, on the other hand, is do you choose to vote at all and the number of people who vote in an election. And there, the evidence is a little bit scarier in the sense that large-scale experiments have shown that social media messages, digital advertising, can have statistically significant effects on voter turnout. Facebook ran an experiment with 61 million people in it in 2010, which showed that with a simple message, they could create votes in uh, congressional elections that wouldn't have happened without their message. They replicated that experiment in 2012 and demonstrated again the ability for social media to create voter turnout. Many studies indicate how digital messaging can get out the vote and that's an important part of changing or swaying elections. Targeting is who you direct digital social media messages to, which populations, in which regions, and which districts uh, in the voting electorate. The evidence in 2016 indicated that Russian interference was targeted at swing states and that the reach and scope of it was large enough to affect voters in a way that could change the election through voter turnout. In addition, we know that a lot of the manipulative messages sent by Russia in 2016 were about voter suppression. Voter suppression memes tend to be targeted at specific communities. So for instance, we know that in 2016, on Instagram in particular, African-American voters were targeted with voter suppression memes, indicating, for example, Hillary Clinton is not a fan of the black voter and therefore we should stay home, or there's really no one to vote for in this election, there's no reason to vote. Those types of memes were targeted through at mentions at communities that were African-American or in this year's election followed the Black Lives Matter movement and so on trying to suppress specific communities of voters in key swing states. New reports prepared for the Senate Intelligence Committee reveal that Russia specifically targeted the black community during the 2016 presidential election. According to the report, Russian agents set up fake Facebook pages, Instagram accounts, and even YouTube channels called Don't Shoot and Black to Live to build an audience of black folks and convince them not to vote. According to the report, quote, 
the voter suppression effort was focused particularly on Sanders supporters and African-Americans, urging them to shun Mrs. Clinton in the general election and either vote for Ms. Stein or stay home. One example post read, no lives matter to Hillary Clinton, only votes matter to Hillary Clinton. And another, not voting is a way to exercise our rights. The number one culprit in spreading misinformation and voter suppression memes in 2016 and likely in 2020 is Russia. While Russian misinformation was scary in the 2016 election, they are much more sophisticated today than they were four years ago. And of course, social media is nowhere near the only factor affecting elections. Certainly, the candidates, their charisma, their policies, advertising, their ability to connect with voters, as well as news of the day, what is hitting the pocketbooks and the homes and families of everyday voters, obviously has the largest effect. Fake news is not a new term. It was not invented by Donald Trump. In fact, it first appeared, I believe, in a Harper's Magazine news story. And we've had uh, the concept of falsity in journalism for many years and decades prior to today. The fake news is creating violence. And you know what? The people that support Trump and the people that support us, which is a lot of people, most people, many people, those people know what a story is true, and they know what a story is false. And I'll tell you what, if the media would write correctly and write accurately and write fairly, you'd have a lot less violence in the country. The thing that makes today different, however, is the speed and breadth and depth with which social media can spread fake news so much faster than the truth online and how that can be targeted at specific individuals and communities creating separate realities for people who are seeing one type of news in one community and a different type of news in a different community. So when we found these results in our Twitter data, the natural next question for us was why? Why does fake news spread so much farther, faster, deeper, and more broadly than the truth? And what we came up with was what we called the novelty hypothesis. So if you read the cognitive science literature, you know that human attention is drawn to novelty, new things in the environment. And if you read the sociology literature, you know that we gain in status when we share novel information because it makes us look like we're in the know or that we have inside information that other people don't have. So these two factors uh, make it more likely that we share novelty. So when we check the novelty of true and false news compared to everything that a given individual on Twitter had seen in the two months prior, we found that indeed false news was way more novel than the truth. And when we checked the replies to true and false tweets to see how people were expressing sentiment about what they were reading, we found that indeed in reply to false news, people expressed surprise, anger, and disgust, while in reply to true news, they expressed anticipation, joy, and trust. So the surprise confirmed our novelty hypothesis that yes, false news is more novel, people spread more novel information more often than less novel information, and people were genuinely surprised by fake news. And I'm afraid the election's gonna be rigged, I have to be honest, because I think my side was rigged. Sometimes folks, if they lose, they start complaining that they got cheated. Uh, but I've never heard of somebody complaining about being cheated before the game was over. 
President Obama responding Thursday to Donald Trump's claim that the election could be rigged. While dismissing Trump's concerns, the president did say the federal government is ready to help local election officials if it turns out their voting machines are vulnerable to hackers. With recent hacks of the Democratic Party, there are worries that a cyber attack could influence voting results in November. There are also a number of myths surrounding voting that are spreading on social media. The major one is that there is widespread voter fraud. There is no real evidence of a systematic voter fraud at the level of ballots or other types of voter fraud, people voting uh, twice, dead people voting, and so on. Although there have been a very, very small handful of uh, incidents that may have happened where there is an error on a ballot. There has been no evidence of systematic voter fraud since we can remember about elections in the United States. Which means that despite all of the myths floating around social media, we as citizens can be confident in the integrity of our elections. So my advice to all of us is that we vote and vote as quickly as possible. There is evidence that recommendation algorithms that social media uses does tend to give us more of what we want and therefore lock us into narrower and narrower sets of information. Filter bubbles refers to the fact that in an algorithmic world, we are each living in our own information bubble meaning that what I see on social media is not what you see and not what, what your friends see. Because everything that you see is tailored to you. And it's tailored to you by algorithms that are designed to give you more of what you want to keep you engaged. That creates these filter bubbles of information that are unique to every individual. Echo chambers are groups or communities of people that are sharing the same information over and over again with each other and that that information stays locked in that community and doesn't cross over, for instance, to the other side of the aisle where different information is being constantly shared amongst a different set of people. So there are certain algorithms, for instance, the YouTube algorithm that tends to recommend more and more of the type of content that you seem engaged with and interested in. Studies have shown that these types of algorithms can tend to lead to more extreme content being shown to the viewer. These algorithms are designed to be bottomless or endless, meaning they keep you engaged in a constantly updating reel of new videos. While the jury is out, on whether this can radicalize someone or the degree to which there are systematic extremism outcomes that are created by these algorithms. The fact that they are sending you down rabbit holes of more and more content similar to what you like and engage with is troubling given the notion of the filter bubble. In order to fight the filter bubble, we have to seek out diverse content. We have to follow people whose opinions are different than our own. We have to do searches for content that is contrary to what we believe. Deep fakes are synthetic video that are generated by machine learning algorithms called generative adversarial networks. These networks have a generator and a discriminator, where the discriminator's job is to tell real from fake videos, and the generator tries to generate more and more convincing synthetic video till it fools the 
discriminator into believing that it's true. Now, the problem with deepfakes is that they're more difficult to spot every day that goes by. There are instances of audio deepfakes where companies have been defrauded out of millions of dollars where the CFO will be called by a synthetic attacker that is using the voice of the CEO requesting that large sums of money be transferred before the end of the quarter or to close a deal. The reason why deepfakes are so troubling is because seeing is believing and a picture is worth a thousand words. I have seen some incredibly professionally created and convincing deepfakes, for instance, of President Barack Obama or Mark Zuckerberg or Prime Minister Boris Johnson or Kim Jong-un that really kind of skate the line between is this convincing or is this not. As deep fakes become more commonplace, as the technology used to create them becomes more democratized and more people have access to it, I think we're going to see a rise of a wave of synthetic audio and video that could become very dangerous in a political environment or in a commercial environment either through fraud or through uh, political manipulation. The House Intelligence Committee held a hearing this morning on deep fakes, that's artificial intelligence, and the threat it poses to national security. Yahoo Finance's Jessica Smith has more for us. This is pretty troubling, Jessica. Yeah, and this comes after two high-profile videos made headlines. One of Mark Zuckerberg, where he appeared to be bragging about stolen data, but it was a deep fake video. And then another altered video of Nancy Pelosi, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, and this video made it look like she was drunkenly slurring her words. So in the hearing today, lawmakers and experts raised concerns that as this technology becomes more and more sophisticated, foreign actors could use this to interfere in our elections. I think the most effective way to spot a deep fake is to uh, distinguish the content of what's being said in the film. If you can't imagine those words coming out of the mouth of the person that you're viewing, that is a good sign that this is a deep fake. Most recently, we've been focused on the potential disasters that social media can create in our world, but it's important not to forget about the tremendous potential for promise that social media can also bring. We know, for instance, that when Nepal experienced the greatest earthquake that it's seen in 100 years, Facebook spun up a Donate Now button and raised $15.5 million from 770,000 people in over 100 countries, which just shows you the mobilization potential of this technology. It's certainly played uh, a catalyzing and accelerant role in important social movements around the world, like Black Lives Matter, the Arab Spring, the snow revolution in Russia, social mobilization in Japan and Hong Kong. And these kinds of social movements can really be accelerated by social media. The day after the inauguration of President Donald Trump, an estimated three and a half million people in cities around the country and the world took part in the Women's March, protesting the Trump agenda in what may have been the largest collective protest in American history. The march started with a single Facebook post and grew from there. 
Research at MIT and at Stanford shows that Facebook creates $370 billion a year in consumer surplus in the United States alone. Imagine that for the entire world. That's economic opportunity, that's the ability to find jobs, access to life-saving health information, and real human connection. In some countries around the world, Facebook is the internet. It's the way that people conduct any number of human activities from market transactions to running their businesses to staying in touch with their friends and family or finding out about where to vote or how to get health care. These types of benefits are actually tremendous. Social media is a very powerful tool for creating such change in society. The real question is, what are we going to use it for? Are we going to use it for the nefarious purposes that we've seen it be used for recently, or are we going to use it to bring about a better world? The Digital Insider with Sanana Ral is brought to you by the MIT Initiative on the Digital Economy. Hosted by Sanana Ral, produced and edited by Carrie Reynolds. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Share today's episode and tag us on social media at MIT underscore IDE. To leave a voicemail for Sanan for the chance to have your question answered live on air in a future episode, call 617-468-8423, or you can email MITDigitalInsider at gmail.com. Visit our website, ide.mit.edu slash podcast for more.